This Professor Anyone podcast has been such a wonderful opportunity to learn from and learn about a wide variety of people. I have so enjoyed these conversations where I've had the chance to connect with and reconnect with people that I sometimes hadn't seen in a very long time. I've been listening to your feedback, so I'm so excited for season two. We're going to have some new stuff, including the opportunity for you to ask questions of my guests on this podcast and maybe a little bit of music. I'm going to bring in an even wider variety of different people to be guest professors here, so I'm so glad you're here for Season 2 of Professor Anyone. I'm Dr. Jason Kessler. Long ago, I learned something that really wasn't new at all. I learned that there's not a single person that you'll ever meet that you can't learn from. In this podcast, I interview people from all walks of life and see what together we can learn from them. This is the Professor Anyone podcast. My guest professor today is actually a professor, an associate professor. Uh, Paul Bjork is an associate professor of African history and oral history, international politics at Texas Tech University. He has spent significant time in Tanzania, Africa. He's going to tell us all about some very interesting things that he's done there. He's the author of a couple of books, Building a Peaceful Nation, Julius Nerere and the Establishment of Sovereignty in Tanzania, and a recent biography of Julius Nerere as part of the Ohio Short Histories of Africa. Paul Bjork, welcome so much to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. It's great to join you. So, Paul, I wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about your experience with Africa. How does a kid who was raised as I was in white, middle-class, Midwest America get into studying and being part of African culture and developing that career? It was via Gateway right there in West St. Paul that led me into Tanzania, and that was uh, Augustana Lutheran Church on Robert Street. Augustana had created a relationship with the Iringa Diocese, Iringa Lutheran Diocese in Tanzania. And, and part of that effort from the St. Paul Lutheran Synod, there, there was, uh, they were trying to build a small college in Tanzania, which had hitherto been a socialist country. And so this was going to be the first private university in the country. Pastor Gary Langness from Augustana was was a strong supporter of this. And a couple, Arnie and Mary Bloomquist, also from St. Paul Synod, were kind of the lead Minnesotans in this. And they were working with uh, Odenberg Mdegela, uh, who was uh, the bishop of the Iringa Diocese. They were kind of looking for volunteers to teach sort of like a freshman comp kind of a class. Because we were teaching an English class, they could make the case that we wanted a native English speaker to teach it. And that helped get past certain types of uh, Tanzanian regulations about where, when and where expatriates can, uh, can do jobs in Tanzania. At this point in history, there's more Lutherans in Tanzania than there are in all of the United States. It's a big Lutheran community there, and which is a very prominent kind of part of it, of that country's religious life in a very mixed country. And I learned uh, Swahili, taught at the university and had a lot of great experiences. And, and uh, so Julius Nyerere was the first president of Tanzania after independence and kind of had led the uh, independence movement since the mid 50s. He was really a, a prominent figure in, in modern African history, an intellectual, a man of integrity, just sort of a central figure in Tanzania's modern identity. I actually got to see him speak. He came to speak at uh, the inauguration of a monument to a 
pre-colonial chief who had fought against the Germans. The monument was actually built by the son of the guy that built most of the buildings at the university. So Nyerere came out there and, and like, you know, he was in well into retirement. In fact, he was quite sick. He had leukemia by this time, but he took this journey, you know, this long dirt road to this very isolated site where this monument was built, which was where this uh, chief had died in the 1800s. You know, it was a sort of arduous journey, and he took all the trouble to do so. And um, and then he gave a speech, kind of saying, "Look, the weapons of the 19th century were, you know, spears and guns, and uh, and Kwawa lost, and you know, the chief. And there's always going to be someone with bigger guns than you. But the weapons of the 21st century are going to be education." It was impressive just that he took the trouble to to do that. It had no real uh, benefit for him doing that. Uh, and then he came out just a few months later for the funeral. And maybe that's why he came out to the other thing. But he came for the funeral of the grandson of this chief who was uh, who had been a speaker of parliament and a, and a strong supporter. So he came out twice in a few months in 1999. And I got kind of saw him both times. My students kind of got me out there because <laughs> they got word of it. After spending a few years there, working at the university, doing lots of things, I, I kind of, for lack of any other direction in my life, thought to myself, well, I know my way around the country now. I know the language. I know a little bit about everything. You know, I could write a biography of, of this first president. There, there, There is no other, no one had written a biography of him at that point. In fact, no one did until I wrote that short biography in 2017. When I got home, I decided, well, I guess the right way to do it would be get a PhD in African history and kind of learn how to do it right. There I learned that professors don't really write biographies as a general rule. They write, you know, narrow studies of this or that. So I kind of got into that, but I did get the opportunity to write that short biography and uh, maybe someday I'll write a longer one. I love this notion of the new weapons being education yeah. and intellect as opposed to spears and guns. And that really is, I think, a mentality of, of peace to think of the weapons as being intellectual. Can you walk us through some of, uh, some of a normal day in Africa and how life is there? There's lots of different lives, right? It depends on uh, where in the country and where in class structure and, you know, professions and so forth. You know, you have Dar es Salaam, which is a teeming metropolis, arguably more orderly than some other teeming metropolises, but still a teeming metropolis of rich and poor and uh, intensely urban setting. And there there's a lot of professionals who, uh, you know, been educated abroad or there's, there's life in Dar es Salaam. And then there's life in a town like Aringa, which is a smaller upcountry town. Probably it was 100,000, you know, in the late 90s. It's probably uh, two or 300,000 now, I would imagine. But, a, you know, a smaller city that, uh, that's a, kind of a calmer, nicer place. And then there's the villages further in you get. And, it, now that, and this is changing, too, because of the growing economy and so forth. The economy has grown significantly in the last 20 years. Way up in the villages, especially back then, um, you know, there were villages that didn't have electricity or running water. And uh, people lived, you know, kind of this peasant lifestyle. To Nyerere's credit, uh, there were schools and like health uh, clinics and things like that, even up in, in these fairly isolated villages. Maybe I would just describe a little bit. When I, so when I was there, you know, way, again, way back, I think after my first year at uh, Tumaini, you know, and there had been a lot of challenges and different things, trying to get used to their educational system and what the students wanted out of their classes and scrambling through curricula and so forth. And so I... I took a little vacation. My vacation was to go up and hang out in, in one of the villages. There was a there was an orphanage which I had been kind of working with, just some you know every every now and again volunteering with. I think Mark Ani, who was pastor, another pastor at Augustana, had been up to a village called uh, Lulanzi, 
And he said, well, Lulanzi seemed like they had a lot of good energy. It seemed like a fun place. I said, well, I'll go to Lulanzi then. And so th there was a woman who was from Lulanzi who worked at this orphanage. I, I proposed, well, maybe I could just go spend some time up in this uh, up in the village. And she said, yeah, okay, I can take you up there and introduce you to the pastor. And so we drove up there and she just kind of knocks on the, the, pa the local pastor's house and said, here's your guest. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And he's uh, so he sort of uh, said, okay, all right. So he put me up in a room in his house, and uh, and I just hung out and kind of read and walked around. There was another guy who was a son of a pastor who was training as a pastor. I spent some time kind of biking around between villages with him. And, you know, it was interesting. Just uh, this was a life where people would get up early in the morning and grab a a hoe, you know, and go out and cultivate a field somewhere and uh, walk back home in the evening or late afternoon they'd fetch water from a, a well or something like that in buckets and bring it back to the house and that was life but i guess what was interesting and what, what i learned and what i really loved one of the things i loved there was that the, the youth choirs in all of these villages were really a kind of center point for for a lot of youth in their social lives i mean because the youth up in the village you know some of them are in uh would go to secondary school some of them not and there weren't any movie theaters or tvs or you know, even really very many radios, you know, so their cultural lives were, uh, were there, you know, and, uh, and so the choir, the youth choir was both a social activity and, an, you know, cultural activity um, that was, uh, that they spent a lot of time at. And what's funny is they have these choir competitions there. And the village choirs tend to really dominate those competitions, <laughs> even though the, the urban choirs can get in like ringers and they bring in a special, you know, uh, director and teacher and all that. But the, I mean, you could almost do one of these, these like uh, TV shows about, you know, the village choir competing against the big, bad city choir and then winning. So their songs were really wonderful and they were mixed between European or American songs translated into Swahili. But a lot of them were uh, traditional either traditional tunes or tunes composed by local song composers. It's a really rich tradition, and it was fun to uh, to be a part of that, to participate in it. Eventually, I kind of I sang in the youth choir at uh, Ipogoro Lutheran Church down in, in Iringa. There, if, if <laughs> I was approaching 30 at the time, my late 20s, I guess, but if you're not married, you're considered youth, <laughs> you know, kind of regardless of what your age is. And that was an enjoyable uh, experience and actually became the topic of my first academic article. I've always really been fascinated by the the musical traditions. And, you know, of course, I'm sort of into music. It's kind of yeah. a thing. Yeah. Um, and I have heard some recordings of some of these local choirs. And I don't, I don't know if they came from Tanzania or not, or that area of Africa, because obviously it's a huge continent. Yeah. But there's some really powerful music. There's definitely a, a deep, deep tradition there. And, you know, both in terms of harmonies, but also uh, in rhythm, you know, polyrhythmic hmm. That, that kind of polyrhythmic thing is is uh, very deep. The polyrhythmic element of African music is uh, longstanding, has been observed in many places, and of course comes into American music via African-American music to some extent. They'd sing songs and then they're like some sometimes, you know, they wouldn't really plan the percussion, like clapping or drumming or or ankle bells like it wouldn't really be planned but someone would have a drum some the choir members would clap and maybe someone would have ankle bells but the way they would just do it it was just part and parcel of you know a culture in which they'd been brought up and so the way they would bring the, that percussion into the song as you said it was surprising and uh you know sometimes i couldn't even quite figure out how the clapping pattern worked like it, it didn't seem it didn't 
fit, you know, any kind of four, four time or anything that I was uh, used to. And, uh, I always found that really extraordinary. Tell me about a goal that you achieved and one that you're still working on. The goal of writing a biography of Nyerere, you know, that I, I, I set that goal, I suppose in 2001 at some point, you know, and I did it. I went and got a, got the PhD, wrote the dissertation, wrote a book just on the first few years of independence that was, you know, very detailed. And then uh, wrote this short biography, and I'm actually very proud of that biography in the sense that, you know, you could write a, a one of these doorstop biographies that people get for Christmas or something. And in fact, recently a, a Tanzanian team wrote a three volume <laughs> biography of Nyerere, and there's still a lot you could say. But for something to be that you can read, that you can pick up and read this short biography is uh, you know really great. I, I like that biography because it's something readable. You could read it on an airplane on the way to Tanzania if you wanted. So I have a limit, a kind of narrow goal of uh, improving my teaching in certain ways. That's always a goal never fully accomplished. In your bio on Texas Tech University's website says, Dr. Bjork has a particular interest in helping students understand the analysis and use of oral history and its interaction with scholarship on myth and memory. I think that there is a very fascinating statement. And I wonder if you would unwrap that a little bit for us and talk a little bit about that. Maybe let me start by saying I went to University of Wisconsin for uh, for my PhD, which has one of the oldest African history, if not the oldest African, well, anyway, one of the oldest African history programs in the United States. A couple of the founding members of that department, uh, a Belgian guy named Jan Van Sina and another American guy named Stephen Fireman focused on oral history as a means of gaining access to an African past where there was few or no documents, oral history and oral tradition. And so that became a very central part of the education at the University of Wisconsin. There is a rich oral tradition in Africa, uh, in part because there weren't written traditions and the oral tradition was you know, valued in, in particular ways that maybe a written tradition cannot be. So storytelling traditions and things like that. So there was a lot of that at University of Wisconsin. And then in, in my research, you know, partially because of all of that, I spent a lot of time cultivating relationships with a, a well, partially with a, a, an organization called the Mualimu Nyerere Foundation, which was, you know, kind of founded uh, in Nyerere's name to, to sponsor certain kinds of activities. And because of that connection, it kind of gave me a little bit of an in, I think. And then in 2006, when I was on a Fulbright um, Scout Fellowship, in Tanzania, I spent several months and, you know, odds and ends of other pieces of time just traveling the country, you know, on public transportation buses with actually a, a somewhat burdensome, I, I could have done probably a better job of this, but kind of a very burdensome kit, a whole video kit um, with like even lights and everything. At, at some point I ditched the lights, but I was traveling around and, uh, and trying to do video interviews with all of these people who had been in the independence movement or the early government of Tanzania, just figuring they're getting old. We're not going to get many more chances to interview them here. I have the chance. And, you know, I tracked them down, uh, back up in their home air, hometowns and wherever they were all over the country. And, um, you know, and that was a really fascinating uh, thing. It was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed it because it's such a kind of social activity, finding someone. Like I, all I would have was like, okay, so-and-so, and sometimes I wouldn't even quite know who they were, but I was given like a whole bunch of names or I would collect names and they say, oh yeah, that, that guy's in Moshi or that guy's in Bukoba or wherever. 
And uh, that's all I knew. And I just have to go to that town and maybe ask a cab driver or ask around and, and start to track the person down and, you know, and try and then try to set up an appointment to do an interview. And usually I'd set up one appointment, uh, maybe do an interview. And then at the, that after same day, try to set up another appointment. So I was doing a lot. Of, I did 100 interviews that year. And what I realized is, you know, the interviews themselves, some are better than others, depending on how much I knew about the person, depending on how talkative the person was how much the person really wanted to revisit the past and all of those kinds of things. Um, but also something which I'd like to write about, actually, here's a, here's a short-term goal. Uh, I've never done this, but I keep on meaning to do so. That kind of oral history, I mean, you get the, you get the, the people, the interview, right? But you also get a kind of social geography. You, to find the person means making connections with other people, mapping out how these people are related to other people in, that, in their, their social group, uh, both in their hometown, but also their social group as a politician and, and how they live in where they live now, some living very humbly, some living very well, and, uh, and kind of what that might tell you about the person. So that was, I think, something very interesting that I don't, I haven't really seen, there's a lot of, there's odds and ends of kind of theory on oral history and different kinds of things like that. But I, don't, I haven't seen anybody write about it in those terms as a social geography. And I, I'd like to explore that at some point in a little article. You have to understand, if you ask an academic about a theoretical issue, you're going to get a long answer. But the other side of it is that, and, and this is more theory that's been done, but when when we tell our stories, even as what's happening right now between me and you, you know, we can only tell a story using the tools and the genres and the storytelling techniques that we know and that, that communicate within our culture. You know, certain types of references and certain types of uh, structures give clues as to what formative elements of this person, what formed them, and, and where do they fit culturally in various ways. And so I think there's a metadata, meta information in an interview that's not in the literal meaning of the words, but is, is kind of lurking elsewhere in the, the structure and, and, and connotations of things. And I've tried to use that some. I have used that in my writing. That's a tough thing to do. And, uh, and it always takes, even for scholars, a little convincing for them to kind of buy your interpretation. That's kind of some of the stuff I do. And I teach a class on oral history where I try to introduce higher level thinking to our graduate students. And even in my undergraduate classes, I always use oral. I try to get them to use oral sources and to look at oral sources and to try to at least engage them, which is always a challenge, but I always try to incorporate that as a part of teaching African history. The really fascinating thing about that is that oral history, at least in my view, is not limited to stories about a culture or individuals who are important in historical times. Oral history is so important just in, you know, as you commented, this sort of environment where we, you know, we're talking about stories and, and the interesting things that I can learn from you by hearing your stories, um, but the interesting things that you can learn about your family's history and your local history from talking to the people who have who have been through it or been been around. I can remember as a as a child listening to the stories of my grandparents, which, uh, you know, they're all gone now, and they left some very fascinating stories that weren't written down anywhere. But you know, we heard as just being around them, and you know, that's interesting about the times that they lived in. But it's also interesting about their personal stories and how that relates to the family as a whole. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. You can definitely look at it, you know, on the, uh, the grand scale of learning about cultures and learning about history 
and also on the smaller, maybe not smaller is not the right word, but the smaller scale of learning about your own family's history. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt. And, and, and I think, but what you're getting at there is like these, these family histories and things like that. Um, so even in a culture, you know, as textual as ours, where now we text each other and we, and we post things in text form on Facebook and everything else. And of course, you know, reading cultures. I mean, we're, it's a very literate culture, you know, as is Tanzania today, everybody's texting. In fact, the first time I saw people texting was actually in Tanzania. And I thought, Hey, I'm behind the, I'm behind the, <laughs> times here. But, uh, you know, that there, there's another, there's this kind of magical element to oral transmission that is, that remains even in our own upbringing. Everybody talks about stories of their grandparents or stories of this or family histories and things like that, that have this kind of quasi-mythical element in one's own personal history. You know, from for, from an outsider's perspective, it may be just, you know, yes, there's value in the experiences of regular people, but from from your experience, it, it has a, some formative values. And, and that's what I'm trying to get at. Like there, there is that, and we want to pick pick that up. And I, you know, I did, I focused my efforts on interviewing people who had been in government and so forth um, because I was doing political history. Uh, but I did kind of here and there do uh, do more like regular people interviews just to get a sense of people's experience, you know, in the villages and wherever all else at different points in time. And th- those, those some, there's some really good stuff in those interviews. Can you go back to your own history and tell us a story from your childhood, something that happened to you when you were younger that was really formative for you, that really made you who you are today? The fact that my family, when, uh, you know, in elementary school, I think I was in kindergarten when we left. My dad took a job. He was working at for 3M. They had offices in Mexico City, and uh, he took a position down there, which I think was a, you know, it's a great professional move. It gave him some important experience that helped him later in his career. You know, and, and it was a, maybe a little bit of a tough move to bring you know a young family down to Mexico City, but it was a calmer time. I think less crime and things like that. Anyway, so it, it, we lived in Mexico for three and a half years to be in another culture and to become aware of cultural difference. That was, uh, you know, very insightful. And of course, you know, the richness of history in Mexico, maybe that's where I became a historian in the sense that history was everywhere and not just, obviously history is everywhere, anywhere you go, but in Mexico, so many different histories, Aztec history, you know, Spanish history, revolutionary, you know, history, it's all piled up on each other, all, it's all there archaeological pyramids and sites like that. And and just Mexico City itself, it's had so much richness to it. It was the 70s and there was kind of looseness, I think, to the cultural generally, which which we don't have quite anymore. Um, So I think that was profoundly formative, a part of childhood. Uh, And it made, you know, the eventual return to Minnesota in about fifth grade, I guess, and that's probably 11 or so. You know, Minnesota was home in the sense that that's kind of the place I remembered as home. And we returned to the same house that we had lived in, uh, which we, I guess, had been renting over those for those years. Friends and neighbors who were still there. And so it felt like I was home. But I also had a perspective of someone who had kind of been around a little bit. There, as as I would say, wealthy people, you know, in the sense that we're ex, an expatriate family living in a, in a kind of a... a a very a suburb filled with expatriates, not all, but a, 
a suburb that was heavily Americans or Europeans and things like that. I don't know. So th- there, there was that, and and that social group was fun uh, and uh, and kind of sophisticated, I think, in a variety of ways. But you know, then there, a part of that was the presence of house help. We had a maid, and and her children were kind of around the house, and we played with them. You know, and I think I think in the United States house help was more common you know in a wealthier family obviously and, and the, a racial element which maybe I wasn't fully aware of but it's just a part of a, a certain reality and and um, my parents being very decent people had a very good relationship with uh, a woman Sara who worked for us and in fact before we left she invited us over to her house for dinner you know a very humble home you know kind of in a in a little barrio a little concrete kind of a building that she lived in, but she was very happy to host us. And and so that was a good relationship. But then once she she was on maternity leave at some point for a while, and there was another uh, maid called Chavela who who was there. And of course, as kids, you're used to one thing and someone else is there and you don't like her. And uh, I think we had, had done something or not listened or something. And I said, I don't like Chavela. She's stupid. And my mother really took me by the arm and like, hauled me into her room and said, you never say that. Uh, you don't call someone like that or, you know, something like that. I mean, she really uh, disciplined me on, on that. And, and I think that was uh, her awareness of some of the class and racial issues involved and her fear, you know, that, uh, that that would shape us in ways, in negative ways. A certain awareness of class and privilege arose uh, as a result of uh, living there in a very privileged position. You know, that, that's an interesting memory of that. I mean, apart from you know, going to uh, the pyramids, you know, and, and like experiencing, I still teach about the pyramids today and I'm, uh, you know, in my world history classes and things like that and and Mexican aspects of Mexican religion and so forth. And I've, I've visited them since, but I knew something about the Aztecs and the Olmecs and the Mayas and all of that, you know, from from my education there and uh, and the effort my parents took to, you know, bring us out to those kinds of sites and uh, be aware of that deep history. What is the best advice that you have ever received? In a weird way, one that comes to mind that was important, and it wasn't advice to me personally as such, it was advice to a group of people. It came out of kind of a tragic incident at a place called Wilderness Canoe Base. It's a a Lutheran uh, camp up in the Boundary Waters where I worked summers in high school. And and there was a director there called Jim Wienan, and he had worked there since he was a teenager, I think, in the 60s, and was a really profoundly decent spiritual person, but kind of from the Iron Range and, and a very kind of Northwoods uh, type of guy, very old school, someone really from the 50s, from the world of the 50s or even earlier. You know, So he had a kind of presence of, of a deep, kind of a longer standing culture in Minnesota. And his wife died, I think she got hit by a truck on the Gunflint Trail. Um, when she was biking. It sounds like what happened is that, you know, she tried to get out of the way of this truck and kind of got into the gravel on the side of the road and, and, and got turned around. And it's just a really tragic situation that, that had, a, you know, a big impact on that, that summer. I mean, it, one of the things he said through his grief, which he processed very internally, you know, of course, being a Scandinavian guy from Minnesota, there was very little external emotion from him. But he said, you know, take up your space if you're out there biking. Take up your space. You know, and I think he meant it very literally. <laughs> take up your space on the road. Make the cars go around you. I've kind of taken that advice as a good piece of advice for life. 
Um, I, mean, I took that advice when I was biking in New York. I worked as a bike messenger and things in New York and was biking in the streets of New York. And I, I always remembered that, take up your space. And I did that. And of course, all the bikers in New York have to take up their space. But in life, take up your space. You know, uh, you have your lane in life. You have your direction in life. Yes, you have to be polite and uh, work with others, but don't always let everybody else just run you over. Take up your space and do what what you are put on earth to do. So I, I haven't always succeeded at that, I don't think, but um, but I return to that advice from time to time. What was your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? That's another tough one. I think uh, obviously there's, there's a million little failures in life, all constant. In high, again, high school, uh, I left high school in my senior year. I went to a school in New Mexico for a couple of years that I was very lucky to get into. It's a long story. And uh, that was after working up at Wilderness for a couple summers. And I was down in, uh, in uh, New Mexico for a couple of years. And by that time, I had kind of left home mentally and emotionally. And, uh, and I came home those two summers and I should have worked up at the camp. Like that would have been healthier for me, but I didn't plan that out or whatever. I wound up kind of staying at home. And, and those were not very good summers. I was very isolated. My parents and I fought a lot. Once you leave home, you can't really go back. It's not healthy. That's, uh, that's kind of what I learned from that. And this, in certain ways, the emotional experience of, of uh, those summers, you know, decisions I might have otherwise made or something, kind of put a crimp on life a little bit, made me question myself in ways that, that I should have found something else to do. You know, I, my, I think my parents felt like I would I had left home a little, like all of a sudden I was gone, like, you know, their first son and, and you know, that, the, that parental experience of like saying, seeing your children go off to college and go off to adulthood and, and kind of realizing, oh, gee, wow, our house is going to be empty. And, you know, that's a that's an emotional experience for a parent. And so I think I felt that and that was kind of what brought me home. But um, I don't think it was healthy. Do you have a... A personal motive or a purpose, what what really drives you? What drives me is is something all in all spiritual in the sense that uh, that I'm, I'm here to do God's work in one way or the other. That's what I would aim to do. And that's what I pray to do. I don't know that I've uh, succeeded. What I try to do is, is continue to do that. And even if I fail uh, in one direction or another or fail to do this or that, well, you know, I just take uh, the opportunity for forgiveness and uh, try to do my best from where I'm at now. You know, so right now my goal, you know, I, I try to write good academic work and be a good teacher. Uh, and that's, that's, my, uh, that's my role in life. Uh, but I guess what motivates me is to continue to try to do whatever God calls me to do. And uh, maybe I don't hear that call very well all the time, but I would add nowadays, you know, my children and family and so forth. I mean, that becomes very motivating as well. And just wanting to give them the richest life possible and uh, teach them to love. What is something you might want to learn from me? As with almost all my age peers, I'm a little behind on things and that, you know, my children are fairly young still. And I, I guess uh, what I would want to learn is uh, more about what you've experienced as a parent and a pediatrician about children and their needs and how to uh, grant them the freedom they need to live and grow and, and uh, learn, and yet the uh, protection they need to, uh, to avoid, you know, the very real dangers that are out there. It, you know, it seems like a cliche. The kids really do grow up so fast. Yeah. And they, they grow and they change. There comes a point where you sort of stop really being able to nurture them 
and you have to just stay out of their way. Yeah. Uh, I think I've reached that point with my kids. My, my kids are teenagers. I have one in college. And you, you sort of have to get to the point where you, you're there for them to support them, but they don't need as much guidance, I guess maybe you would say. And sometimes they resent the guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, picking, picking your battles in terms of when you're trying to steer your kids and when you're trying to appreciate who they are. So my, my oldest has recently been transitioning genders mm-hmm. and that was really hard for me yeah. to, to work with that and to use different pronouns than I've been using for the entirety of her, formerly his life. I just sat down with myself and said, you know, I've invested an awful lot in this person. I love this person. You know, if, if I just have to learn to use different pronouns, okay. The importance that, you know, that your kids are to you. Mm-hmm. And what I've really found is if I just sit back and interact with my child in the way I ordinarily would, just we don't have that much of a different relationship. Mm-hmm. We don't have to. So it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a matter of being able to accept and being able to love your child no matter what. And yeah. for me, that's not difficult. And I hear these stories of people whose children do something that their parents just disown them. And I can't imagine that. I just cannot imagine that. Kind of an example of how you learn to appreciate everything that your kids are, even when it's not what you expected. In some ways, that's universal. But in you know the, this issue of... Uh transitioning genders and so forth is we're coming to it. I mean, it's, it's some way or another, it's been around forever, but we're coming to it in a, in a, in a new way in, in this generation. And I don't think we fully wrapped our heads around how complex that kind of a transition is emotionally, physically, everything else. I think we, we, uh, we, we, we approach it in these very kind of superficial American ways of, I can just be this or be that. And it's just sort of a mad, you know, I can just do it. And, and uh, in some ways, that's a freedom that American culture has granted us in certain ways, but it's also something where I think the certain shallowness of our culture will take a while to fully comprehend both sides of, of that kind of a transition, not just for the person transitioning, which is a profound and uh, difficult experience, I'm sure, um, and also a liberating one, but also for uh, the fact that we don't exist as just you know, atomized individuals floating in social space. We exist in relationship to others. And those, those re- we, you can't just, uh, those relationships are real. And, uh, and, a, and changing identities, whether because someone is growing up or because they're finding new motivations in life or because um, they're realizing something about their gender that needs to be addressed, whatever those reasons are, that's going to pull on all those other relationships to dismiss those relationships is is a mistake we have to uh, work with them and realize that we are people in community always paul i've really appreciated talking with you today i've learned a lot about life in africa which i enjoyed learning from you uh, a little bit about Nerere. i can't pronounce that name <laughs> Yeah, um, but okay. uh, yeah. and p- particularly his idea of education as replacing spears and guns as the weapons of the 21st century. Uh, we've learned about the importance of oral history and uh, the need to take up your own space and so much more. So, Paul, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Great. Well, thank you, Jason. It's, it's been a pleasure. To- Listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, 
post positive reviews for us. If you haven't enjoyed this podcast, do let me know. Uh, we have uh, means to reach out and be in touch on the website uh, for this podcast at thingsbyjason.wordpress.com slash the-professor-anyone-podcast. dash dash